Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. We're returning today to an interview with a representative from the provider side, but one that represents all providers, no matter what their specialty. Our guest today is Sandy Marks, Senior Assistant Director of Federal Affairs for the American Medical Association in their Washington office. Sandy's responsible for advocating AMA positions on Medicare physician payment policy with a particular focus on telehealth and alternative payment models. In this position, she played a key role in the AMA's successful campaign to eliminate the sustainable growth rate formula. Sandy has contributed to AMA publications and has organized AMA workshops for physicians on alternative payment models. She also handles federal advocacy on efforts to combat the opioid epidemic and other public policy issues. Welcome to the show, Sandy. Thank you. It's so nice to see you again, and um, thank you for having me. Oh, we're, we're honored to have you. Our first topic is going to be value-based care. Does the AMA support the movement to value-based care? Absolutely. Um, if you look at value-based care, meaning the highest quality of care for patients at the lowest feasible cost, um, I think all physicians want to deliver high quality care. They all want to deliver effective care. Um, they don't want to use expensive treatments when lower cost treatments are available. They don't want to impose higher costs on their patients than is necessary. So um, it's physicians support value-based care, not just the AMA, but yes, we absolutely support it. Well, I was hoping you'd answer it that way, but there are barriers. Uh, my God, it seems like we're sometimes going down a hill of moguls. Um, what kind of barriers are the physicians facing today in uh, being able to participate and deliver value-based care? Well, I totally agree with you. Physicians do face a lot of barriers. Um, they aren't paid for many services that would enable them to deliver the highest quality care and get the best outcomes for their patients. They have to devote a lot of staff time to administrative requirements when those people's time could be better spent educating patients about self-management of their conditions, helping to coordinate their care. Physicians don't know what tests and treatments cost because that information's kept secret or it's hard for them to get. They spend a lot of time providing data to payers and even to their own electronic health record systems, but they often find it impossible to get the data back from their own systems um, or from payers to help them improve the care that they're providing. Um, they're paid when they provide services to patients. So they're gonna actually lose money if they keep patients healthier so that they need fewer services. That's a huge barrier. Um, and there's other barriers such as patients who don't have insurance and other regulatory issues, but the problems with the current payment system is probably the single biggest barrier. Boy, you really touched on just about all of them. You know, one, one of the ones you just mentioned that I don't think a lot of people realize 
is the additional staff time that's necessary uh, to make the transition from fee-for-service medicine to value-based care. It really takes an investment for that practice uh, to make that transition. Um, we've, we've tried to assist physicians in, in building that infrastructure, but it seems like there are no definite rules. And so the doctors are learning as they go in this process. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely true. There's very little support for physicians to do practice transformation. And the other word that sticks out for me and uh, the way you answered that first question is non-transparency. The non-transparency of the payments that are being made, uh, the contractual arrangements that payers have with, with various other participants in healthcare, it certainly makes it difficult for a little physician in an office to try to make a difference in value-based care when they don't see what, they don't see the data that's being, that's necessary for them to provide that value. Yeah, I think it's especially frustrating when the physicians themselves have to spend so much time providing data, whether it's to insurance plans or even just their medical record systems. You know, they're always inputting this data and they can't get anything back that's useful to them. So it's very frustrating. So true. I spent 35 years in practice and I can't tell you how much of our documentation is just performed to fulfill requirements for billing and collections. It takes away from patient care. Um, have Medicare's value-based payment initi initiatives helped physicians overcome these barriers? Are they make, is Medicare making any progress? Um, I don't think they've really been that helpful, at least to date. I hope they're making progress or will make progress, but most of the payment models and systems they've put in place so far really don't fill the important gaps that exist in the current payment system. They can increase administrative costs for physicians even more than they already were, um, and they can reduce the time that they spend with patients. And worst of all, they penalize physicians for things that those physicians can't control. Um, physicians, most physicians are pretty comfortable with the idea of taking accountability for the quality of care that they provide to their patients for the conditions those physicians manage or their practices manage. But, you know, you can't expect a physician practice to take accountability for the cost or quality of oncology care for their patients who get cancer if they're not in oncology practice, or for the cost and quality of joint replacement procedures that their patients get. But mostly they look at things from this total cost of care perspective, and it just leaves physicians feeling like they really can't influence the way that they're being judged in their performance. Very true. I've been the beneficiary of having access to Medi Medicare claim data and commercial claim data. And it is so eye-opening when a physician actually has the opportunity to see what is being spent for 
the not only their own services, but for the services that are provided by others. And we can't we can't really provide the product uh, with full value with the non-transparency of the information. I, I want to ask one more question on you. You know, Sandy, you and I ran into each other a lot in a previous administration. Um, you know, during the Obama administration, there were eight years of programs that were being developed and, and a movement to value-based care was, was being promoted. But it seems like over the last four years in the last administration, Medicare was trying to retrofit change into previous rules rather than trying to develop new models. Are, are you able to expand on that at all? Am, am I accurate in my assessment? Well, I'm not sure I would answer it in terms of one administration versus another. Um, the Affordable Care Act put the CMS Innovation Center in place in 2010. Um, the MACRA law passed in 2015, and the first performance year for MACRA was 2017. So we were into the next administration by then. Um, and it also put in place this physician-focused technical advisory committee that you submitted a proposal to. Um, definitely that process of having stakeholders develop their own proposals and bring them to the Medicare program and get them tested or implemented has not gone the way we would hope it would have gone. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure you can say it's because of one administration or the other, but um, it certainly hasn't developed the way we would hope. No, it hasn't. I don't think any of the approved proposals, including, including ours, were ever really uh, fully implemented. So what, what has the AMA been doing to try to improve the programs that Medicare has uh, developed for value-based payment initiatives? Well, we have helped physicians to develop better value-based payment models. Um, we've certainly encouraged Medicare and other payers to implement physician design models. And we've, we've done a lot of that. Um, and we've encouraged Medicare to change their payment system so that they're truly gonna support value-based care. Um, and the other side of MACRA, for example, the MIPS program, which is a pay for performance program, we've been working to get it changed to allow physicians to get credit for focusing in a meaningful way on quality costs and use of technology to manage particular conditions or episodes of care or public health priorities instead of having four different measure sets that are completely unrelated to either what the physicians are doing in their practice or to one another, and then have it just be a kind of check the box compliance program. So some real transformation is needed on, on both sides, both in the payment models and also in the um, MIP side of things. You, you know, you bring up a really excellent point there. The, the box checking that physicians have to do to comply with these various programs it's okay. I don't think the physicians mind doing that if they feel that those check boxes correlate with a favorable outcome in the patient. It seems so often that these are 
process measures that aren't necessarily uh, associated with an improvement in the, the patient's overall outcome, but they serve to fill a box that is necessary to satisfy one of these programs. Yeah, well, some, some process measures, I think, probably are related to outcomes. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's just been a problem. There's, there's, I, I don't think physicians feel like engaging with the MIPS program or other pay for performance programs that are around at this point is really meaningfully contributing to their patients' healthcare outcomes. So it, it, it becomes a waste of resources. You know that uh, sonar is heavily involved with inflammatory bowel disease. There is only one approved MIPS measure specific for inflammatory bowel disease. We can maybe make an argument that there might be a second, but you know, when you when you have to fill six or eight, six. Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, you're obviously going to have to be filling out measures that have nothing to do with the illness in which. Uh, you're, you're treating the patient. So it, it is frustrating. And I, I hope you're successful uh, in promoting that move. All of this movement to value-based care brings up the need for alternative payment models. So let's, let's shift, shift gears a little bit to that. Uh, does the a, how is the AMA supporting creating alternative payment models? Well, we've strongly supported creating good APMs that can address the barriers physicians face in delivering truly value-based care. Um, we've had many programs. We started over a decade ago. We did educational programs in different states all across the country to explain to physicians what value-based care and alternative payment models was all about. Um, and we saw a lot of enthusiasm for it. Um, we also had national programs, as you know, you've participated in them, where physicians can hear from other physicians who have been involved in developing APMs, um, how it's benefited their patients and their practice sustainability. Um, so uh, we're, we've been strongly supporting APMs and, and will continue to do so. Are there specific organizations that you've worked with that have uh, been able to help you in this endeavor? Have the specialty societies or, or any of the family practice societies been of additional help for you? Yes, the, a number of the national medical specialty societies have been engaged in this work in a very significant way. And there have been um, specific physicians who have really played a leadership role too. I mean, you, you're one of them yourself, um, our former AMA President, uh, Dr. Barbara McEnany has done amazing work with oncology payment models. Um, so it's, it's been a mixture. It's, you know, specialty societies, certain leading physicians, but um, physicians as a whole, they're, they're very engaged, I think. They're very interested in APNs. Yeah, I've sat on several panels with Barbara. She's, she's, she's definitely a powerful force on those panels. And, <laughs> and, and it really, I think, makes a much greater impact in Washington when we do have multiple organizations coming together uh, and, and speaking in concert about this, the same thing. So it, it always helps when we're working together. And the AMA has been pivotal in bringing uh, some of these meetings together, and we appreciate that. 
Thank you. Many, many policymakers that we deal with have been disappointed that most physicians are still paid for fee for service. Uh, they think that physicians like the fee-for-service system and that the only way to increase participation in APMs is to make them mandatory. What do you think about this? Do you think it's true that physicians are preferring the fee-for-service and are the ones that are reluctant to make the transition? No. Um, I think if APMs were well-designed and they really removed the barriers in the current system, lots of physicians would participate in them. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, let's take telehealth for a second. Telehealth is the biggest innovation that's happened in medical practice in decades. It happened almost overnight, it seemed like, last spring. Tons of physicians who had been providing mainly fee-for-service medicine, in-person visits, in-person services, all of a sudden moved to telehealth. They adopted this innovation. They adopted remote patient monitoring. They adopted these digital health tools. Um, and why did it happen? It, no one mandated it, right? But CMS reached out to us, HHS reached out to us. They said, what do we need to do in this public health emergency, what do we need to do so that physicians are gonna be able to take care of their patients? I give them a lot of credit. They, they really did engage. And we came back to them and we kept coming back to them with all kinds of requests. You need to add additional services to the telehealth list, emergency visits, home visits. You need to get rid of the frequency limits on nursing home visits and hospital visits that can be provided by telehealth. You need to increase the payment rates so it's the same as an in-office visit, not, not what you would get for a facility visit because a telehealth visit is not a facility visit and it's you know 30, paid 30% less. That's just not financially sustainable. You need to cover audio only visits, not just audio video visits because a lot of patients aren't, don't have the ability to participate in those. Um, and then you need to increase the payment rates for the audio only visits so that they're financially sustainable. So we made all these recommendations. They took all these recommendations. They broke down the barriers. The patients could get these services all over the country. They could get them without having to go in person to some other medical facility and get it from a distant site. They could get it in their home or wherever they were located. And the patients have loved it. The physicians have loved it. And they adopted it in droves and they don't wanna give it up. They wanna to move to a blend now that we're starting to come out of this public health emergency to a blend of sort of what we call digitally enabled care where there's a blend of in-person services and telehealth services. So, you know, I don't wanna go on forever on this but I, I think it's really a wonderful example where if you truly break down the barriers, you really don't have to mandate anything. If you provide a good model, physicians will absolutely adopt it. Sandy, that is very well said. It's uh, what was a Deming statement, something to the order that every process is designed to produce the outcome that it produces. <laughs> you know, if you, if they, what they did was they changed the payment model they changed the way physicians were paid because prior to this uh, uh, COVID crisis, 
we weren't paid for those telehealth visits the same way. So they changed the payment model. The patients wound up being happier. The providers wound up being happier. Care was provided. I, I hope this continues. I hope we find a way for telehealth to continue to find its place in uh, the treatment regimens going forward, because I think it really does fulfill a need. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Sandy Marks, Senior Assistant Director of Federal Affairs in the American Medical Association's Washington office. You represent all physicians, primary care as well as specialists. And I'm sure sometimes that's difficult. Physicians from every specialty are active in the AMA. And we know that payment policy issues are often very, or they can be very divisive. How do you bridge those divides in order to be effective in helping shape policy? Well, first, I, th I think when we talk to practicing physicians, it's clear that no matter what their specialty or their geography either, because there's also a lot of divisions sometimes between you know, rural physicians, urban physicians, there can be a lot of areas where things break down. But most physicians have the same concerns and the same goals. They all want to provide high quality care to their patients. Um, and they all face hurdles like prior authorization, um, across the board cuts like the Medicare sequester. So, um, you know, there's, there's more really that unites physicians than that divides them. So I, I think that's kind of fundamental that it, these, these divisions aren't naturally there. A lot of times they're actually there because the regulatory and payment policies pit physicians against one another. Um, so if a payer requires every uh, patient who has a specialist order a test for them while they're trying to diagnose their condition, to have that test approved by a primary care physician who didn't order the test in the first place and doesn't necessarily know what it's being used for, that creates division between primary care and specialists, and also I think between physicians and their patients um, because of this second guessing. Um, there are payment models that penalize primary care physicians for making referrals to specialists, uh, even if um, those referrals are really needed, or they give them financial bonuses if they reduce their referrals. So, um, you know, the, the payment models are helping to make this problem worse and certainly insurance plan requirements that, that pit people against one another. But in their, when you really get physicians in a room together from different specialties, they find a lot that they can agree on and, and they know how they want things to be redesigned so that care will be improved. You think there should be alternative payment models designed specifically for specialty care? Or are you concerned that this will lead to greater fragmentation in the care of patients? No, um, I'm not concerned about that. I, I, I want to make sure I'm saying no to the right thing. No, I don't think it'll lead to more fragmentation. Um, I do think we need APMs designed specifically for specialty care. Uh, I mean, you know, as I mentioned before, patients who develop cancer, they, they clearly need to be managed by oncologists, 
maybe by a team of radiation oncologists, medical oncologists, surgical oncologists, um, other kinds of physicians and, and other kinds of health professionals as well. Um, but, you know, primary care physicians just can't do everything. And you need to have good payment models to, to really support specialty care. Uh, people go on these diagnostic journeys, trying to figure out what's wrong with them. And then they struggle trying to find a treatment plan for the patients that really work for a condition that's managed by a specialist. And that whole process of trying to really do a comprehensive diagnostic workup and get to an accurate diagnosis of a patient's problem, and then find the treatment plan that's going to work best for that patient, that they're going to be able to adhere to well and, and have their condition be well controlled, that takes a lot of work by a specialist and it needs to be supported and it's not by the current payment system. So. Yeah, no, I know. I agree with you. I was happy to hear you answer that question that way. In inflammatory bowel disease, for example, patients with Crohn's disease have very few comorbidities. They're typically young and their Crohn's disease is their main condition. And so their gastroenterologist winds up becoming their principal provider. And I've often said that in, in situations like that, it's actually easier to, for the specialist to find someone to provide the primary care than it is for a primary care uh, physician to find the right person to take care of the, 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 the Crohn's disease. So we need to work together though. And I know, I know Medicare is, and CMMI are very much trying to find ways of building these alternative payment models so that they have, they recognize the primary care component as well as recognizing the specialty care uh, component. It's not easy, but I, I think communication and willingness for everybody to work together are, are definitely necessary. And it's also not always going to be one or the other. So we've organized a number of meetings to look at complex conditions that involve a number of different physicians and other health professionals from different disciplines and specialties to tackle problems like stroke or um, dementia, mm -hmm. um, chronic diseases, where you're going to have a lot of people involved. And um, there are models that need to be developed for those conditions as well, that, that'll help support everybody who needs to be involved. So we need primary care models, we need specialty care models, and we need these even perhaps more complicated models that, that can support all the different disciplines that need to be involved in care. Yeah, for the polychronics, they are, they are definitely reality. Sandy, what has come out clear in this podcast is you are truly an advocate for physicians. <laughs> I think the listeners today should have gotten a lot out of this conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for the audience for tuning in. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.
Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.